Welcome to Christ in Cthulhu. I am your host, C.L. Fuquay, and today we begin our dive into one of Lovecraft's most famous and influential works, The Call of Cthulhu. Let's begin. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. This is the famous and profound opening to one of Lovecraft's most well-known and celebrated works, The Call of Cthulhu. This was the first thing I ever actually sat down and read from Lovecraft after I bought my Barnes & Noble's Necronomicon edition of his selected works, and what a per first paragraph to read. C.S. Lewis once stated that when he began reading On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius the Great, he, quote, quickly realized he was reading a masterpiece, end quote. Well, as I said in the first episode, from that opening paragraph, that's exactly how I felt about what was in front of me. And I felt that if he could pull off such a profound introduction, he was a true artist. Not only had this man managed to state the complete opposite of what I believe as a human being, but he did so in the most eloquent and powerful prose possible. When I discovered Lovecraft, I had not yet encountered the Orthodox Church and was not familiar with its teaching and theology. As I have become Orthodox and immersed myself further in its life, I find what I hold to be the fullness of Christianity even further from Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. It's really a profound body of literature that captures the antithesis of Eastern Christian spirituality so well. From the opening paragraph, we find the claim that searching for existential answers to life's biggest questions, questions of eternality, place in the cosmos, divine direction is not to be undertaken. Doing so will ultimately lead you to the revelation that the universe is full of chaos and your insignificance is undeniable. Whew, what a dismal worldview. But let's see if Lovecraft can spice up the way it's presented. On to the story. If you've read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis or Dracula by Bram Stoker, then the structure and method of storytelling in Call of Cthulhu won't be as jarring. It has a fascinating structure that kind of pieces itself together like the first paragraph alludes to. Being slowly revealed in letters, newspaper articles, and diary accounts until the fantastic climax at the end. Although it is a bit unconventional in its method, it does follow a traditional three-act structure. Act 1, The Horror in Clay. Act 2, The Tale of Inspector Legrasse. Act 3, The Madness from the Sea. On this episode, we will be covering Act 1. The story centers on a man, Francis Wayland Thurston, 
who was tasked with going through his recently deceased granduncle's documents as he was a childless widower. At the time of his demise, it seems like a perfectly natural death, but as the story progresses, you begin to suspect foul play. His granduncle, Professor George Gamble Angel, was Professor Emeritus of Semitic Languages at Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island. Going through the documents, he comes across a locked box with a key on a separate key ring, and opening it, he in a sense opens Pandora's box. The story builds with intrigue from there, with Act 1 centering on the discovery of a bas-relief sculpture, of a strange-looking creature we come to find out is a depiction of Cthulhu. It is attributed to a young sculptor and student, Henry Wilcox. Along with it are documents with the header, Cthulhu Cult, but at first our focus ends up being on Henry Wilcox. Wilcox apparently dreamt of this figure and of a creepy city of cyclopean blocks, hieroglyphs, etc. Dreams are important in this tale, and in particular to the nature of Cthulhu. The couple of alien-sounding words the young artist is able to make out from his dream are what catch the professor's interest because he's heard these same words many years before. These uncanny connections stretch the rationalistic, materialistic Francis Thurston just enough to keep him interested, but not enough to make him a true believer. This is a genius tactic to keep the story moving forward, and an interesting parallel to Lovecraft's own beliefs. It is especially interesting that he focuses on this character's beliefs being turned upside down, but in the worst way possible. Back to the story. The professor asks to be updated on Wilcox's dreams by using a dream journal until suddenly the student goes into a feverish fit on March 23rd, being unconscious and bedridden for days. This period lasts until April 2nd with Wilcox suddenly waking up, forgetting what had happened and having no more strange dreams. The professor begins looking into other local and global events, inquiring of his colleagues if they could provide him with similar materials of their patients, etc., like he was receiving from Wilcox. Most importantly, he wanted to see if there was a correlation during the same time period, and he realizes a disturbing trend of mania, panicked dreams, strange blasphemous paintings, suicides, heightened cult activity, and more from people all over, with the artistically-minded people being most heavily influenced. The narrator notes that had the men sending in their separate reports been able to compare notes, they would have been in a panic. This idea once again calls back to the opening paragraph and the overarching theme of cosmic horror. The act ends with Francis being convinced that the young sculptor Wilcox must have known of prior events and was trying to put one over on the elderly professor. This ends Act 1 of Call of Cthulhu. So, we have cults, mysterious deaths, inquiry, and investigation, all from the first few pages. I must reiterate, you need to read this story for yourself. His writing ability is so exquisite that it does not do to merely hear a synopsis. I named this podcast Christ and Cthulhu because Cthulhu is naturally the most popular figure of the Cthulhu mythos, and I thought it sounded catchy. However, he is not quite as important to the grand mythos as you may be led to believe with the saturation of his visage in pop culture. Nonetheless, this story is Lovecraft at his best and firing on all cylinders. No doubt the result of him moving out of Brooklyn and back to his beloved hometown of Providence, Rhode Island. You see, for a period of time prior to this story's creation, 
Lovecraft had moved to Brooklyn to live with his new wife while she managed her clothing business. But when things went south with the business, she took a job states away and Lovecraft was unwilling to make another large move again. So he stayed behind and slowly deteriorated mentally and physically. It was not until he moved back to Providence that his mood and seemingly his writing improved. The improvement took shape in the creations he conjured, creations like Cthulhu. As we will see when we explore more of the mythos, there isn't one particular entity or deity that is the perfect parallel to Christ. This is first and foremost because Lovecraft specifically wrote and created a cosmos that was not Christian. But it is also because Orthodox Christianity isn't like any other belief system in the world. Christ is described as High Priest, King, Sacrifice, and Creator all in one. Cthulhu is High Priest of the Great Old Ones, but there are far more terrible, powerful, and indescribable entities beyond even him or the other Great Old Ones, which we will come to find as we explore more of this mythos. Christ's role in essence is virtually absent from these outer gods and the Great Old Ones. But that's the point. When we fit all the pieces of the truth together, we don't find Christ at the end, we find Cthulhu. How terrifying a prospect. The stuff of horror legend, in fact. I said it was virtually absent because there is one way in which Cthulhu shares similarity with Christ, namely in the ushering in of the end for humanity as we know it. But this will be expounded on in much more detail in Act 2, The Tale of Inspector Lebras. Before I wrap up, let's do a little dive on Cthulhu. Starting with the name itself, you'll hear all sorts of ways people pronounce it, but the way I'm saying it is probably the most common. Lovecraft himself states in a letter to a friend that there's really no correct way to pronounce it because his name wasn't made for human vocal speech and it is yet another part of him that is unrelatable to us. He is perhaps the most popular of Lovecraft's deities, and I suspect a large part because you can actually depict him. And if you've seen any of the Cthulhu depictions, he looks pretty awesome. Very aesthetic in a horrifying sort of way. Gigantic, bat-winged tentacles over the mouth, just asking to be envisioned in all sorts of ways. And if you do an image search on Cthulhu, trust me, you'll see what I mean. The other of Lovecraft's monstrosities are quite incomprehensible to behold or describe. That is part of the horror. They are wholly other to us and our human experience. This shares an aspect of the Christian understanding of Almighty God. There are things we can't fully comprehend or share in. For example, we are called to emulate and follow the pattern of communion with one another, as God is a communion of three persons, threefold oneness as some of the church's hymnography states. However, we do not become part of this Godhead, that is, a fourth person of the Godhead. Another example of God's otherness is His essence. St. John of Damascus is one of the most important theologians of the church, and in his exposition of the Orthodox faith he states, quote, It is plain, then, that there is a God, but what he is in his essence and nature is absolutely incomprehensible and unknowable, for it is evident that he is incorporeal, end quote. This understanding of God is what makes the act of the Incarnation so unthinkable and grandiose. Quote, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, end quote, as Christ says. But with the outer gods of Lovecraft, they are amorphous, shapeless, and horrific to the human mind. 
to encounter any of them is to stare into the abyss, to quote Nietzsche. Christ, being the visible, depictable, tangible incarnation of God, may in a sense be similar in relation to Cthulhu's relation to the big beings of the mythos on a grand scale. However, as we will come to find in other stories, there is another entity that more closely mirrors this aspect of representing the divine, more so than Cthulhu. There is much more to say about our bat-winged tentacle mauled friend, but that comes as we get into parts 2 and 3. To wrap up, we see there is a commonality in the apophaticism between Christianity and Cthulhuism. Yet, you land in different universes at the end. This is quite different from the pagan gods of ancient Greece, Rome, India, etc, etc. It is perhaps what appeals to me most about Lovecraft's world. I could wax poetic over the genius of this all day. However, we will leave off here. The excellent music for this podcast was provided by a couple of artists. First, we have comp- composer Graham Plowman. You can find his music on a host of streaming services and his website, grahamplowman.com. We also have Cryo Chamber, which you can find by searching Cryo Chamber Music on Facebook or YouTube, as well as their band camp. Also, a special shout out to Dora Alvarez for helping with editing and production. I've been your host, C.L. Fuquay. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember... That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. <laughs>